Hi, I'm Ben Field and welcome to the Hillsong Film and TV podcast with part two of my interview with Dean Batari. If you haven't listened to part one yet, stop, rewind and check it out before jumping into this episode which begins right now. In terms of creating that story arc, yeah. is there a blueprint kind of format to mapping it out and knowing whether it's going to work? Um, I wish there was. So first is, is this an idea that makes me kind of go, oh, you know, there's just that natural reaction we all have that, that goes, oh, it's like, like, like the thing about the 70s show one. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, dad gets drunk, gets, gets mad at you. That seems like a good place to start with the story. Um, and then is there enough to do with it? Because once then you go, is there enough story here? Probably 50% of the notes I give to people is, I don't think there's enough story here. Um, they tell scenes that are, that are just, they don't advance the story enough. And so if somebody's pitching me a story, I'm going, oh, well, that will be a fun scene when this happens. And then this will also be fun when this happens. So now that we have those two scenes, how do we stitch them together? How do you help the character find out you know, what's a fun way for character B to find out that character A doesn't want to go to the party that they've inviting to and they're trying to hide it from them? So how do you get that information in? And you start to see, oh, we're going to need five or six beats here. And will that fill up a television story? Um, you know, television is a little bit algebra because Goodwitch, for example, had a teaser in five acts. So if we're going to tell a story, we need stories that we can check in on at least once an act, right? And again, once you start training yourself that way, you start to see that. I'll continue to watch movies and go, oh, that character disappeared for 45 minutes. Right. And I suspect they might have been cut out in editing. But that's kind of what you're wondering. Is is there forward motion in this story? You know, um, Cole Porter, or some songwriter, but I'm going to say it was Cole Porter, um, said uh, every song in a musical theater show is supposed to do four things. It's supposed to do one of four things. It's supposed to advance the plot, set the tone, establish character, and leave the audience humming. Uh, advance the plot, set the tone, establish character, and leave the audience humming. If your song can do all four of those things, then it's going to be great. But I think about that in terms of scenes. Does every scene advance the plot? Does it set the tone? Is it funny? Is it suspenseful? Is it, is it sad? Depending on what you want it to be. Um, established character, does it reveal something new about the character? And does it leave the audience humming, which is just kind of that, is it written well, right? right? And if you plug that into every scene that's there, and by the way, once you spend hours in the editing room, this becomes even bigger because is that we only have 42 minutes and that scene's going to have to go or the end of that scene, which was so funny, doesn't advance the plot, right? So can you think about, I'm always asking people, how is this scene different at the end than it was at the beginning? What's the one line, you know? These two characters in the room and the one character finds out this or the other character tries to kill him or something. How is that story advanced? And that's what you're thinking. Um, and you need a bunch of those. I I'll also say this. Everybody talks about story so much. And I actually led a seminar once that was titled Story Doesn't Matter. And I pissed off a lot of people because there was a guy <laughs> in the room who was like a story person who like did seminars and stuff. And And – Everybody says, find your story, as if there's some hidden key that if you find that story, that's going to break, break right. everything loose. Honestly, Star Wars doesn't have much of a story. There's not, you know, there's a lot going on, but it's not, you can kind of guess the next scenes. But, but it's about execution, right? It's about, to, to me, good structure is this. Page one makes you want to read page two, and page two makes you want to read page three. And do that 120 times in a row, and you've got a screenplay that people would read. Now, it also has to be compelling. Mm -hmm. It has to be entertaining. 
but it's mostly about execution. And I, I continue to say to people, if, if page one isn't good, it doesn't matter if your big thing happens on page 10 or you've got this great act break happening on page 29. You've got to execute it well. You've got to be able to sing well and then move on to the next thing. And I continue to say to writers at least that it's something innate, uh, almost like you know whether, whether you can sing or not. Now, you can learn to become a better writer, but if you have that skill, then you can learn the tools of the trade. You can learn you know, music theory if you're a good jazz singer, but it's really much as much about execution as anything else and figuring out our scenes. Necessary. Those are the two biggest things. I read, I read too many pages that just aren't very interesting, and I read too many scenes that don't actually advance the story, yeah. that things are different at the end. Yeah. And a lot of people will say, well, but it was fun dialogue, or they got to know each other better. Okay, maybe. You know, maybe they revealed something. That's good. But I always want to know, yeah, what's different. Yeah. I've, I've heard this term many times, plot over character. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about character building, what do you think is one of the biggest mistakes that people make when creating characters? Yeah. I've heard also um, dialogue is offense, but story structure is defense of a script. So if you've got good story structure, your, your script will always hold together. And then, but it's, it's a dialogue that keeps it moving forward, but it's that. Um, so there's a good book called The Comic Toolbox by an author named John Vorhaus. And I actually recommend it not just for comedy writers, but it's actually, it's actually the best book on comedy writing I've ever read. He's also got a book called Writing for Emotional Impact, which I think is really good as well. But he, he writes things like if you kind of come up with a character, you want them to be the most of that kind. Like, if you're going to come up with a zany nun, you want the zaniest nun ever. Or if you want to come up with a bad father, you want the worst father ever. Now, you don't, I guess you don't want him abusive, but letting him liar, liar. Yeah. You want to be the most neglectful liar anyway, you know, or father ever. And if he's a lawyer, you want to be the lyingest lawyer ever. That's what creates good comedy. I tend to want characters who have a really strong and defined worldview. Um, and uh, and believe in it a lot, or are trying to figure out what they believe, so that they, when they get in situations, they're going to utilize that worldview. And I use that word "utilize" a lot because I want them. Whether you're, if you're a nihilist, I want the character to utilize their nihilism. If if they're a hater of something, I want them to utilize that hatred. Um, I tend to want characters who um, speak interestingly, <laughs> speak in a way that. That just kind of what they're saying kind of makes me lean forward. I like characters who are curious. I think curious—I never expressed it this way. I think curiosity is the trait that's missing in a lot of characters because it makes you ask questions about—it makes your characters ask questions about other people. Um, David Mamet says um, the only reason characters should speak is when they want something. And it's an interesting theory. He actually theorizes that humans only speak when they want something, right. which I think is a little cynical. But, but, you know, maybe we want admiration. Maybe we want people to think highly of us. Or, you know, in this relationship right now, you're asking questions, so you want something from me, and I want, I guess, the admiration of your audience. I don't know, or something. I'm getting free lunch, I think, out of this, so that's a good deal. Um, but it's an interesting way to look at characters. As I yeah. know when actors look at script, they're always going, what does my character want in this scene? Yeah. And I think... And it's actually helped me a lot to go back over my scripts and say, what does each character want here? So I think curiosity, a clear want. I have these two characters on, on Goodwitch that are both kind of the, the comic foils, and one of them is really selfish, and one of them is really insecure and wants people to really like her. You put those two in a scene, and it yeah. always pops, right? 
Um, on that 70s show, it was kind of hard to define what the characters want. They generally wanted to get high right. and have sex. <laughs> and so you put them in scenes, and sometimes there's not a lot happening, even though you know what their want is. Although in Fez's case, he also wanted candy, which actually kind of drove some scenes. It kind of made it funny. So it's those things that are missing a lot yeah. that I see from characters. And when I pitch comedies to networks now, they're all asking, how is that character going to be funny? And why are they going to be funny with this other character. So when I'm pitching, I say, you know, I'm going to put these two characters in a room and they're always going to have fun together because this one is really conservative, this one's really liberal, this one uh, it doesn't really care about the world, this one takes life really seriously. It's just little things like that that you put them in a room and define them. They find them that way. Yeah. So how do you keep your story from feeling cliche hmm. or inauthentic? You know, it's an interesting question because I, cliches never really bothered me. Um, I try not to be predictable, but what I try to do is even if I so, – so television and Goodwitch is a good example of this because it's not a really edgy show. It's hallmark. It has to be a happy ending. There, there can't be a lot of conflict and you know, there's no threats of death and people generally have to get along. So the stories we tell are kind of predictable, but what I try to do is take a turn in the middle of them. So I do get to a I didn't see that coming kind of moment. Um, this is really weird. I've never given this advice. I don't think writers should be afraid of cliches and predictability because if you, if you execute it well, then uh, people will still be interested in it. Now, you always want to find surprising ways, and there is that moment in the writer's room where we tend to go, okay, that's what I ex expected to happen, but let's flip that. Right. Instead of the one we think that's going to dive on the grenade, let's have somebody else the one you don't think dive on the grenade. Now, there's no grenades in Goodwitch, so that's a different thing. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, you know, there, there's, nothing, there's nothing horribly surprising when Han Solo comes back to protect Luke in Star Wars, in, in, the, in Star Wars A New Hope. But you're still surprised when it happens. But it's kind of a cliche. Oh, the outsider who went away now is suddenly back at just the right moment. Yeah. But it still works right. because it's still a surprise and it's that character coming back and he's, he's both the least expected character but the one that you do expect. So... The challenge is that everybody kind of forces, sometimes people force non-cliches into their scripts. So you're going, that character would never do that. But then when you come up with that idea, that character would never do that, then you go back in your story and say, well, let's plant a seed where maybe he or she would. Yeah, so it's a little bit more surprising. Yeah. But I think you can, I, again, I don't think you need to be afraid of cliches and predictability yeah. along the way. A lot of television is cliches and predictability, but it still ends up being entertaining. Yeah. I guess that's the key, right? Is it entertaining still? Is right. it holding the attention of the audience? And, can, you know, if it's comedy, is it quirky? Yes, you should always strive for I didn't see that coming. But if you did see that coming, it's not that bad. Right. It's not that horrible. Can yeah. you can you put some some fancy things around? You know, Rob and I, my writing partner, we were writing a King of the Hill spec years ago. And we had this kind of boring scene. It was a necessary scene because it was the parents and the kid and the kid was, it was sort of take your son to work week, and he didn't want to be there. So he was really bored. He was sitting on the edge of the picnic table while the mom and dad were talking about what to do. And during the conversation, the dad decides, here's what I'm going to do. At the instigation of the wife, decides, maybe this will help if I do that. So it was a necessary scene. But there was just nothing entertaining about it. And so then my writing partner suggested, well, what if it took place at a carnival? What if we put them on the bumper cars and do the exact same scene? And so instead of the little boy being silent at the edge of the table, every few lines he's bamming his parents because he's <laughs> mad at his dad, right? So then it became a funny – now you know why the scene is yeah. funny, right? So it was still a predictable scene. There was nothing really surprising in it. It was the dad was kind of depressed. It was the mom kind of pumping him up and saying – 
here's what you're going to do next. Yeah. But it suddenly had energy and comedy. So that's yeah. what I look for in Clever. the how do we add that to it. Clever. Yeah. A few quick tips just to finish this one off. Sure. Um, so just starting out, how do you know that you're good enough? Yeah. Um, well, you have people telling you that they like what they see or they like what you read. And by the way, it can be your mom. Your mom's generally going to be too positive. It can be your friends. You need to find people that will be honest with you. But you need to find people who say, yeah, this was interesting. Um, this wasn't boring. Uh, um, this made me laugh. Next, if you can get your material in front of people, and whether that's a writer's group or a small group of people or a theater or, you know, I tell people who go to church, you have a built-in audience every Sunday morning, and you go to the pastors at churches and say, can I do the announcements this week, whether it's a video or whether it's a sketch, or can I do the Christmas show? Um, and then you see people if they're paying attention. And, yeah, you're always going to get people who love everything, but you find people who will be critical of you. And you have to actually encourage people to be critical. Most people want to be too friendly. I think you have to say to them, be hard on me. And then, um, and look, if you're doing, if you're putting something online, are you getting hundreds and or thousands of hits? And yeah. are people recommending and eager to see the next thing? And um, and then it kind of grows from there. Yeah. What would be the best place to start if you haven't written anything? Um, is spec writing still a popular yeah. way to kind of get your work seen? Yeah. So spec writing in television. Spec writing is writing scripts for shows that already exist uh, as opposed to pilot writing, which is writing, you know, creating a new world. I tell everybody, and this goes against everything that's being taught at just about every college, which are doing it wrong. So you can quote me here. Anybody, just go to your professor. Um, they'll love me, I'm sure. Um, I really believe in the value of spec writing. Write two or three spec scripts before you write a pilot. Writing a pilot is one of the hardest things you can do. Everything that can go wrong will. But writing a, a specs is like learning dance steps. It's like learning uh, you know, the, the basketball moves before you're playing in the big leagues. Uh, there was a writer, Nora Ephron, who says that when she came to Hollywood, the first thing she did was type out William Goldman's script for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which was one of the best scripts at the time. She wanted to feel what it was like for great writing to go through her fingertips. That's what spec writing teaches you. You don't have to create characters. You've got the five or six acts or three acts that you got to fill up. you got the voices already there. The challenge is, can you write these voices? It's a way to work out your skills, figure things out, then eventually go to world building you know, three or four, again, I told you I wrote seven specs before yeah. I got a job, and then it was more spec, more writing on staff before I wrote my first pilot. So, yes, walk before you can run. Do that. See if you got the style. See if you like the format. And then it'll kind of be ingrained in you. Okay, now I know what needs to happen around page three, around page 10, the middle of the show, get everything into 65 pages. Then write your pilots and create your world. Yeah. Is there a great way today to self-teach if you don't want to go to film school? Like, yeah. What's some things people can do at home now that's going to help develop that skill set? Yeah, it's write those thousand pages. It's read a few of the books. You know, there. I, I I've never read... I'm not a big fan of screenwriting books because they all sort of have these rules that, yeah, you should know them, but I haven't really read any of them, and I never took a screenwriting class. But I mentioned that book, um, The Comic Toolbox. There is another book called The TV Writer's Handbook. Uh, Ellen Sandler, I think is her name, that is pretty good about how to format, formulate a script. I hear Save the Cat's a good book in terms of, of get, you, know, get, yeah. it, you know, about keeping things compelling, keeping things entertaining, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's... Watching a lot of TV, uh, reading scripts, finding scripts online that you can read. Same with screenplays. A lot of people think they're a movie expert because they've seen movies. If you want to be a writer, you got to read scripts, see how the words play out. And then um, 
Look, I think you can. There's a lot of TV writing contests. Um, you know, the, don't, the ones that charge hundreds of dollars are, may or may not be scams. But they're, you know, the ones that charge 25 bucks, the, the, the Warner Brothers Workshop, the, the New York Independent Television Writing, Final Draft has a thing, Scriptapalooza. You enter your stuff into those and you see if you're starting to get honorable mentions or interest in your stuff and say, hey, I might have it because they take things very seriously. And if you're in the top 10%, the top 20%, you have it. Um, that's kind of the way to go. Yeah. And again, I, you just got to write. My self-teaching was, hey, I wrote a play and put it on and people liked it. So I wrote another one. Yeah. Um, and and again, it, it's, it's, it's getting in the room with people who might be able to help you um, teach yourself that way. Um, my friend who went to UCLA, got his master's from UCLA over two years, they wrote seven scripts. You know, that's a master's degree. If you come out with seven scripts, yeah. that's the value of these schools. And they might teach you the discipline. They'll force you through writer's block because you're paying money. Um, but it's really more about the faculty. Do they kind of know their stuff, whether they've written professionally or not? Um, are they helping make you better? You know, what's their philosophy of getting these pages out? How are they going to get these pages out? What software do you use to write? I use Final Draft, um, but I think they're all the same. I had to buy ScriptWriter for one show, but I don't use any of the bells and whistles. I don't use the script notes things. When I'm breaking stories, I just use a, a spreadsheet that has, you know, six blank spaces on it, and I'm filling it in kind of it's like a whiteboard. Right. Although I think you can actually do that in Final Draft too. Every now and then I will go through and just kind of look at the dialogue, you know, they'll print out cast reports or something. Um, one of the books I do recommend, though, is a book called The Hollywood Standard by a friend of mine, Chris Riley, and I'm not recommending it because he's a friend of mine. But too many people think if you have the software, you know how to format a script. He realized there wasn't a book out there about formatting, and he wrote right. like 22 pages just on slug lines. And it, it's a book that will actually make you a better writer because it shows how a page should look. And I talked about how if you can write a compelling page, well, the, the software will tell you, will show you, yes, this is how wide this line should be. But it won't tell you how many lines of, of action lines should be there and how long a, 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 um, a, a, a speech should be. And, and he does that really well, can make your writing actually better. At what point do you think um, writers need to have an agent? Well, more than 50% of the writers in Hollywood got their first job without an agent or manager. It's kind of one of the myths. Everybody says, well, how do I get an agent? Well, you get an agent and a manager by writing really, really well and people noticing your work. And eventually it gets passed into the hands of somebody who knows their agent or manager and recommends you to their agent or manager. That's how I got my agent and manager. Um, if you can get scripts to get attention with these script program, you know, these contests that I talked about, or if you're doing work that's getting web hits, that's 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 getting a following online, they'll start to notice you. You can't really cold call agents and managers. This is one of the reasons that you need to be in Hollywood. Eventually, if you want to be a writer. You know, you start meeting people. Everybody knows somebody who knows somebody. A lot of entry-level jobs are in mail rooms or studios or at development companies. And if and people will ask to read your scripts. I've never had, when I was starting out, I never had to ask anybody to read my script. They all eventually offered, and uh, because they liked it, they then passed things on. So um, that's kind of kind of the way that happens. You know, a lot of the professors that I'm friends with all say, "Look, when you have uh, students of yours that." have really good writing, send it to me because I want to find good writers, mostly right. because as I age, I want them to hire me eventually when they get work, right? So so that people kind of have it backwards. That, um, But 
I know, again, if you read these, if you get these, uh, win these contests, if you get on the Nichols Fellowship or get a script on the blacklist, you'll have mo- no problem getting representation. So that really is the way. Um, yeah, look, success in Hollywood takes talent, access, and opportunity. 75% of it is talent, how good you are. Uh, 15% of it, I think, is access, who you know, and 10% is opportunity, that timing, you know. We, we, they, needed our, they needed writers like us on Buffy, so we got on Buffy. So that was, we already had the scripts, we already had the accents, that was really that opportunity. So write great scripts is how you get representation yeah. and become better. And just lastly, before we finish up, you know, you've had a book out. Tell I me did. about that. I did. I co-wrote a book with Cutter Calloway, a professor at Fuller Seminary, called Watching TV Religiously, uh, published by Baker Books. Um, there are books out there about theology and film and God in the movies, and we realized there weren't. There wasn't much out there about television, especially in this day and age. They kind of looked at it both from an academic viewpoint about what television is and how it's storytelling and then how it's made. And I wanted to look at, just from the storytelling point of view, there's nothing else like it. NYPD Blue is one of my favorite shows on TV ever. It's got 211 episodes, and it's about the redemption of Andy Sipowitz from start to finish and the journey he takes. And I just love the storytelling format. So we looked at it from... How do stories add up? What kind of meaning do they have? We looked at a, there's a chapter in there about God on television and what can you take from a representative of, I was talking about representing Christians earlier, how are Christians represented on television? And there's also a chapter in there that talks specifically about how television is made, the difference between a story editor, executive producer, some of what I talked about when I was on that 70s show. So it's uh, anybody who thinks about these kinds of things um, from from a meaning point of view, from a theological point of view, and from a how-to point of view. We did a whole chapter on how the final episode of a television show can change the meaning of the entire episode. You know, what Lost became in the final episode, what Sex and the City became in the movies. It actually became about, you know, four women who were all in monogamous relationships. So you look at it as all leading to that. It kind of, Seinfeld, the final episode, punishing them for their lack of goodness becomes a different sort of thing. So that's what it looks at. It's called Watching TV Religiously, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Awesome. So where can people get that from? Um, a- Amazon, as, and actually a lot of college bookstores will have it because it's now a college. Uh, yeah, it can be any Barnes & Noble or anything like Amazing. that. Amazing. Awesome. Dean, thank you so much for your time. Welcome. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the series via Apple Podcasts to make sure you get the latest episodes as soon as they're released. And also, don't forget to follow us on social media at Hillsong Film TV. And a quick honourable mention and thank you to my co-producer and mixmaster, Josiah New. And I look forward to being with you again next time on the Hillsong Film and TV podcast.